Greetings to everybody globally here on this wonderful uh, time period of Halloween. And uh, this is a special Signum event. Uh, how could we uh, continue on and talk about imagination and all the things of uh, wonderful uh, early Middle Earth without talking about Halloween as well. So uh, tonight or this morning or wherever you may be, um, we've gathered three of the wisest uh, professors at Signum. Uh, Professor Sarah Brown, Professor Gabriel Schenk, and Professor Maggie Park. So we have a global uh, panel here, uh, the, the wisest uh, on this particular topic. But, um, greetings to everybody. And uh, basically, I wanted to just start this off. First of all, this is my real hair. <laughs> it's kind of an effective global <laughs> over here in uh, Wheaton in, in Chicago. So nothing to be worried about. But uh, just in general, today being Halloween in one form or another, it still seems to have such a strong uh, grasp on Western culture. Uh, as I walked around my neighborhood, some of the uh, Halloween houses looked about triple done this year. So I think folks are really leaning into it harder, at least here, uh, because of COVID and being able to be out. Um, would, would the three of you mind commenting just on the place of Halloween? perhaps uh, in uh, your upbringing or just in cultural matters in general, just to get things going. I can make a start if you like. Sure. Okay, well, um, I have had a whole wide range of different experiences with Halloween. Um, I spent a lot of my childhood in South Africa where Halloween was not a thing. Um, and so trick-or-treating was something that I read about in books. Um, so it just wasn't there. When I came back to the UK, um, I, I did go trick-or-treating a couple of times, but it, it wasn't like a, a huge thing for us. Didn't really do too much with it. Uh, when I met my husband, he's from Ireland. Uh, and of course, as you'll know, Halloween and November the 5th are very close together. Now over here in Wales and in England across the border, uh, November 5th is a big deal. We have all the bonfires and the fireworks and things when apparently we celebrate the fact that somebody did not blow up the Houses of Parliament. Now in Ireland, that is not something they celebrate. They kind of would have liked somebody to have blown up the Houses of Parliament. So actually November the 5th isn't a thing. And Halloween is very much a thing. So I saw far more of Halloween and celebrations of Halloween when I was living in Ireland, where it was a, a huge thing, where gangs of kids would be with their parents and going from door to door. Uh, and you'd better have a massive pile of sweeties in your house ready to hand out. Um, because you would get knock after knock after knock after knock. Um, and it was fun. It was wonderful. And it was a real kid thing. Um, now I'm an old woman and kids knock on my door and they're all dressed up in cute little costumes. And I was handing out sweeties this evening and it was really kind of cute. And it's, it's lovely, especially now my own child is, well, She's almost 21 and has kind of gone past the idea of trick-or-treating, but not past the idea of sweeties. Um, but she likes the whole idea of handing out sweeties to kids as well. So, you know, here in Wales, it's, it's still a fun, but it seems to be a family thing. I'm not sure just how much of a connection to the old Sarwin traditions and stories and folk tales we have anymore. Um, 
but it'll be interesting to hear what everybody else's experiences are. That's great. Thanks, Sarah. It really um, uh, yeah, I, I, I can go ahead. Um, I mean, I'm waiting for Maggie's response because, um, you know, uh, as, an, as someone who grew up in America, um, that is my association with Halloween. So I um, was living in Florida uh, for about a year when I was four years old. And so all my early memories are in uh, uh, are of America. And I remember Halloween very distinctly and it was extremely exciting. I wore this very same shirt shirt is is 30 years old and i went trick-or-treating with my memory is i i took a whole pillowcase and filled it with candy um yeah so it, which is um astonishing here the the british children are, or you know they just take one sweetie they put it into a little thimble um and it's all kind of pathetic uh, in america they do it um big styly uh i did ask my parents about you know was halloween a thing when they were growing up and my dad growing up in Wales, my dad, uh, my mum growing up in England. And they said, no, it was, it was bonfire night was the big thing, mm. uh, which is November 5th. Um, yeah, sorry, you're right that we kind of celebrate the Houses of Parliament not blowing up, but I always feel like it's a bit of a, um, we, we let off fireworks to, um, uh, so to, uh, to imagine what the explosions would have been would have sounded like kind of thing i think kind of we're secretly sort of hoping um that guy fawkes had succeeded so it's a funny kind of uh, event bonfire night but kind of a similar thing um to halloween in some ways you know it's the same kind of time of year it's dark you have fires you have lights out um, it's an excuse to do something with your family outside um you know with nice food uh, so that's kind of the, the, the big thing for that of my parents growing up. And for me, it was a kind of half and half Halloween bonfire night. Now I think it's more Halloween than bonfire night. Um, but still, it's a kind of two, two, two things uh, in, uh, in England, at least. Great. Uh, what yeah, about sure. you, Maggie? Yeah, I, I'm going to have two sides of this coin. So now I live in Wales. And it was really interesting to hear, Sarah, your description, because I live 15 minutes down the road from Sarah. And nobody knocked on my door. Nothing is decorated in my village. I know it was so sad. And last year during lockdown, our little bus shelter became a little trick-or-treat hub. There were candies, there were lights. It, it was decorated to the nines. Little kids came in and picked up their little sweet bags and stuff. And this year there's nothing. So that's a bit of a shame. Um, I did get a costume for my little baby girl and I just took a picture here. Like there, there was just nowhere to take her. So I said to Allie, my hubs, I was like, we're going to have to go to the U.S. for Halloween once she's aware of things, because it's just different. <laughs> so in the U.S., I have have those quintessential movie memories of exactly what you have seen in the films. Um, we debated for weeks, if not months, what we would be for Halloween costumes. It never had anything to do with being scary. It was usually some book or TV character. Um, one year I was a Pez dispenser. Many years I was a horseback rider because I was obsessed with ponies when I was little. Um, I was a poodle skirt girl, you know, 1950s diner girl. There, there was no theme of horror. Every year my brother was a baseball player, meaning he just put on a baseball cap and went trick-or-treating. 
Um, we would go in groups. Uh, there would be themes to your groups. We would go to quintessential neighborhoods with the big candy bars because we knew where the big candy bars were. We also carried around pillowcases because um, they were stronger than plastic sacks and filled our, our pillowcases. And then when we got home, we would line up our candy. So all the peanut butter cups would be in the same section. It was very OCD of us, but we would put it all out and then take a photograph of it every year. <laughs> yeah, it was a little obsessive. And then we each had a bucket. There were three of us in my family. So we each had a bucket and then it was rationed over the next month i would say we were supposed to have one piece a day but obviously you would sneak six or seven into your room and never tell that you had had you know seven people in a row yeah i have really fun memories of halloween and now it's also tied up with all of the wonderful things that happen in the u.s that i'm like we have to go back because i want to do a hayride and get apple cider and carve pumpkins and do the corn maze and all the lovely events that happen in the U.S. None of it having anything to do with the traditions of, of where it came from. It's it's all just silly fun in the autumnal times. Yeah, that's a lot of folks say, uh, or I've read about that Halloween is kind of the American holiday in some ways as far as how it became commercialized and all those associations that you're talking about, Maggie. Um, all the things you just said you wished you'd be able to come back. I've already done those things. Like that's part of Halloween. I've already gone and done the hayride. I've done the cider this morning. I've done. So it's kind of a fall. You know, it's just kind of a fall thing. Yeah. A greeting of the fall. It seems like there's three elements to um, Halloween. One is the candy or the, the kindness to children. Uh, the other is dressing up or imagining you're somebody else and what goes into that. And the other one is the turning of the year into into darkness, so to speak. Sort of. A reflection of uh, maybe some of the more supernatural events uh, regarding death and uh, the permeability of uh, the other side. Um, so I have a second question here. Uh, first of all, in Cal I'm sorry, I'm originally from California, but in the United States, we call it uh, Samhain. And I'm not sure why we call it that, but it's been a rude awakening for me to realize the correct pronunciation is Samhain. Uh, and I've been pronouncing that all day long, trying to get that right, but Samhain. Um, Samhain is sort of the origin, uh, where, where Halloween comes from. If we remove the Church of England and All Saints, we can remove that out of the way. And um, originated in, in Ireland and kind of came over to the Isles in different ways in different communities. Um, and so uh, what do you think the interest is in looking at uh, these um, Celtic... Uh, um, Irish, we call them Irish, I won't get into the Celtic maze, but these Irish traditions that go back and they, they seem to be uh, a, the lure of the pre-industrial times and the pre-Christianized times it seems to be combined in trying to remember these times. Uh, Danny, do you have any thoughts on that as far as what, uh, what the draw is there? I think it's a powerful thing to feel a connection to the past that goes back thousands of years. Um, it's a privilege as well. Not everyone has that around the world. Um, but to sort of feel like you're doing something that the ancestors were doing, um, even though, you know, you may have mixed family relations and stuff like that, uh, you feel like you're Welsh or you're English or you're Irish or Scottish. And there's 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 a joy in kind of linking back to something that happened for thousands of years before you um how real that is is another question i mean it's 
it may, you know, these, these, uh, some of these things do go back a long way, but then they sort of came back in a, in a sort of slightly artificial way, but that's not to say that it isn't still powerful. So just up the road for me is a stone circle called the devil's quoits. And it's about 30 stones. It's about 5,000 years old. And um, by World War II, there was only one stone left and they knocked it over to build a, a, a military uh, airfield. Um, but then in the 70s, they, um, they got the stone back out from where it had been buried. They put it back in the place where they worked out it would have been. They found other stones that were kind of around the village um, that had been moved over the centuries. And that left about 25 stones missing, but they managed to find kind of approximations of other stones because, hey, stones are stone. So, and I'm talking about big rocks, by the way, massive rocks, um, a little, little bit like Stonehenge, but, you know, one of these stone circles. And then they reconstructed the ditches and the, um, the, uh, the uh, embankments all around it. And they did archaeological work and they worked out that there was sort of fires here and there were animal bones. Maybe it was a place of sacrifice. Um, but we just don't know um, what went on there. And yet when you sit on the embankment and you look at the stones and you think this is pretty much the same view as would have been seen, you know, 3,000, 4,000, 5,000 years ago when the Romans came to England and, and Wales, they would have come across this. Um, and even then it would have been sort of, you know, looking back into the ancient past. Um, so there's something really powerful in that, even though it's a little bit fake, even though it's a little bit kind of um, manufactured, um, it's, it's a powerful thing to have that link that goes back thousands of years. Uh, not everyone has that, so we should be grateful for it. And, and it is a, a, a privilege, um, whether it's genuine sort of authentic history or not, it's, it's uh, a wonderful thing to feel that connection. It's great. Anybody else? Some thoughts? Um, yeah, I have a few thoughts. Um, I'm speaking as a, a Welsh woman, if you like. Um, we have a lot of ancient traditions when it comes to storytelling in Wales. Uh, and they're rooted in um, like oral storytelling, but also in a, a book called the Mabinogion. Um, and it is a, a book of ancient tales. Uh, and Ireland also has a number of, uh, you know, ancient tales like that. And there are a, a couple of things to remember about what's happened to Wales over the millennia. Um, we had a Druidic tradition in Wales. Uh, and because of that, we have stone circles and we have barrows and all sorts of things. But we also got the Romans. Uh, and the Romans made it their mission, literally, to wipe the Druids off the face of Wales. And in so doing, they also destroyed as many of these ancient monuments as they possibly could. Uh, and over the centuries, many of these have been found uh, and kind of dug out, not so much restored, but just kind of found and, and made more obvious so that we can see what was once there, if you like. Um, and then after the Romans, we got the English. Uh, and the English made it their mission to come in and destroy as much of the Welsh culture as they possibly could, including the Welsh language. Um, all in the sense of, sorry, Gabriel, nothing personal here against 
you know, you personally, the English in a general sense, uh, wanted to, um, to take away Welsh culture and Welsh language because that's a very good way of subjugating a population. Uh, and that, of course, happened over many hundreds of years. Um, and right up into when we go to like the early 20th century, when uh, it was actually um, made a rule that Welsh children were not allowed to speak Welsh in school. And if they did, they were severely punished. Um, they were forced to wear what was called the Welsh knot, which was a board around their necks with, with rope um, with I must not speak Welsh on it. Uh, and they would be beaten for it. And the, the whole idea there, I will get around to how this links with Halloween in a minute. Uh, the whole idea there was that um, the ruling classes in Wales, which were inevitably uh, English or English immigrants, uh, thought that was best for the Welsh children, that they actually got rid of their Welsh language because that was the language of pretty much savages. And they spoke English so that they could actually make their lives better. What happens when you do this to a people is that it kind of drives underground the culture, but it does not get rid of it. And so people hold on to it tighter. Uh, and then when the yoke is lifted, it, it's, it's there and it's still there and it becomes a very precious gem to the culture that has lived under the yoke for many, many, many centuries. I could argue that thanks to the Westminster government, we're still doing that, but that's a whole other meeting. Um, and so what happens then is a, a, it becomes a treasure. It becomes something that we look at. And yes, what Gabriel said about it being a little bit artificial, it is in that it is, you know, we take the nugget of what was there and we kind of inflate it and make it bigger and more important. Uh, and then we run like tourist buses to various uh, ancient monuments and all that kind of thing. And, and we make a new culture of it, if you like. Um, and so that's kind of where Wales is at in that the Welsh language is, is having a massive comeback. There are areas of Wales where it is first language, uh, many areas now actually where it is first language. Um, and the stories, the ancient stories are part of the tradition that is taught to children in primary schools, particularly Welsh speaking primary schools. Um, because we look at what has been taken away from us and we look at what we still have and we take what we still have and make it as important as possible. Um, and so there's, there's a lot of that there. I know it's a very roundabout way of saying where Wales is at when it comes to the old traditions, but it comes out of having them suppressed for millennia uh, and yet they're still there. Uh, and, you know, Gabriel can put his hand on a copy of the Mabinogion uh, and that's pretty amazing, actually. Yeah. Because yeah, those, yeah. those tales are ancient and wonderful yeah. and, if you've never read them. And, and, and very much a personal thing as well. I mean, this is uh, my grandmother's copy. My grandmother was Welsh speaking. My dad, not Welsh speaking. Uh, what does he do? Um, in the 70s now, he learns Welsh. And now he's fluent. Um, and he, I mean, we live uh, in Oxford. He used to drive all the way to Wales once a week to get Welsh lessons. Now, that he's discovered Zoom, you, you don't have to do that. Uh, you can learn Welsh from anywhere in the world. But you know, it is it it is a uh, it's in one level it's it's not that 
serious, but on another level, it really is. Yeah. Uh, and it does go back a long way, and it, it is very kind of like a there's something from the heart as well, like mm. you say. Well, Tara. And I apologize lovely. for calling you English, Gabriel. You are clearly no, no. I, I am uh, well. I'm Welsh, and sometimes I'm I'm technically half English, quarter Welsh, quarter Czech. You didn't I'm, say I'm, it like it was a dirty thing. So <laughs> and and the only thing I would add to that, you know, being a bit Welsh, I've been here 16 years. Uh, is the the community that this builds you know that there really is this kind of fine line between the fun and the flighty and the the topical as well as the depth but they float together really well you know you you can dress up as a character from the Mabinogi for for Halloween you know there there is this kind of levity that can still be brought into this more gravitas history that I think we have um and it's it's beautiful to see that. I don't think I have the same kind of attachment to it in the communities I grew up in. So it's lovely to kind of have that here. Um, I think personally where I grew up, it was just topical. It was just fun. You know, you just watch the cheesy ABC family TV specials and you hang out with your posse and you try to scare yourself. And maybe you go on a haunted hayride and you scream at the guy with the mask and a chainsaw. There wasn't depth. <laughs> Obviously that depends who your circle is and where you engage, because of course you can find that, you know, there are wonderful communities in the US that do celebrate this um, and will gather in the woods um, around ley lines or in stone circles in North Carolina or wherever they happen to feel the power and their connection to the past. Um, and I think there's also this, this physical connection to the other world. And sometimes that's easier to find in these kind of off the beaten track places and close to these items of power, like these big standing stones. So, you know, people will seek out those kind of natural sanctuaries and, and create this space themselves. But there's still this like knowledge at the root of all of this, that it's deeper than what they understand. And there's that kind of like, yearning for that attachment that I think draws people into this and for me it was always about community you know so like if you find your posse that feels the same way and you can celebrate with them mine happen to be levity and silly and others are not um so yeah a, a bit round about the houses but there's my two communities of 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 thought in both Wales and the U.S. and levity and depth <laughs> and just to add to what you said there Maggie you're right about that yearning that we have for the past. When you go to one of these ancient places, um, it's you, you can get such an amazing feeling from them. If you actually put your hand on one of these stones and just feel that sense of the ancient through the stone, it's incredible. And there is that sense of yearning. And I think that's one of the reasons why we love these uh, old stories is because it speaks to something that's really primal inside us, that feeling of being connected to the ancient. Uh, and it's, it's not quite, but it's almost that same sense that Welsh have a word for it, it's hiraith, which is that longing for a homeland and the past. It's, it's, it's almost an inexplicable word, if you like it. You can't pin it down in one neat sentence, but it's that, that connection to something, a longing for that past place if you like um and i think there is a sense of that in there as well so yes there you go i always use that to describe why i'm here i must have lived here in a past life because the here that i felt for wales when i was eight years old you can't make that up like there there has to be some sort of a connection mm. here but uh, here beautiful word
Well, to an, to an American, this is a fascinating conversation. Um, and I may say that the, the Halloween sort of goes back to Ireland somehow. There, all of the context you put into this is something that gets lost. And Gabriel, I was struck by you saying not everyone has access to their pasts. Um, and that's quite a thing to say in our day. And then Sarah, the, the, the only way I can relate to uh, the Welsh and the, your description there is the indigenous communities in America as far as um, what they used to say is, you know, you kill the Indian to save the Christian, so to speak. And, um, and the damage that did, um, and just the ability of Native Americans to celebrate even within the last 30 years, their traditions in front of people. Um, and then um, Maggie, I, I, I'm thinking of what would be something that ancient that I could go walk near in the United States. And I think um, that the Tocqueville said that Americans have amnesia historically, that we don't we think of ourselves as new. We don't have that sense of the sacred. Um, I could think of the Black Hills. I could think of indigenous places, but for my own peoplehood, I don't. I don't have that. Um, I can't think of anything ancient I would walk by. Um, there's, you knew, you guys knew I was going to bring up Susan Cooper, but there's a wonderful essay by Susan Cooper um, called "Why Are Americans Afraid of Dragons?" I think that's what I think it was her. Maybe it was Ursula Gwynn um, talking about Americans. Yes, Ursula Le Guin. Is it Ursula Le Guin? Um, talking about Americans' connection to ancient things and and how they kind of veer away from it. So I highly recommend that essay because it's just like, yes, tap into that. That is a very primal thing that we want to grab onto. So I'm sure there's something around you. And if not, you can make it up. You know, you can put some, some rowan and hazel branches together in a wood and make some import into that piece. You know, you can, you can create meaning with whatever you find in your space. It's just handy when you have an ancient rock that somebody tells you is an important thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Someone in the comments mentioned, sort of like uh, Ray Bradbury said in the Halloween tree, that the, the turning of death and life, the turning of the winter is kind of unique to all cultures. Um, but there is something unique to the, the Halloween specific part we're talking about and the, and the focusing on the Irish and the Welsh. Um, so let's get to the story. Um, this is called The Adventures of Nira, and it's just uh, an Irish tale that is uh, associated with uh, Sawin. <laughs> I had to look it up to get it right. Uh, I'm learning as, we're, as the hour goes on here. Um, and I've just asked um, Sarah and Gabriel and Maggie to, to take different parts and kind of get into it. But it's a, it's a tale that is associated with uh, Samhain or Halloween. So I thought that would be appropriate tonight. So uh, I think, Sara, you're, you're the one who begins. So uh, feel free. Okay, I'm just bringing up my page. There it is. Okay. One Samhain, Eilil and Maeve were in Ruth Kuachan with their whole household. They set about cooking food. Two captives had been hanged by them the day before. Then Alil said, he who would put a wither around the foot of either of the two captives that are on the gallows shall have a prize for it from me, as he may choose. Great was the darkness of that night and its horror, and demons would appear on that night always. Each man of them went out in turn to try that night, and quickly would he come back into the house. I will have the prize from thee, said Nera and I shall go out. Truly thou shalt have this, my gold-hilted sword here, said Eilil. Then Nero went out toward the captives and put good armour on him. 
He put a wither round the foot of one of the two captives. Thrice it sprang off again. Then the captive said to him that unless he put a proper peg on it, though he be at it till the morrow, he would not fix it. So Nera put a proper peg on it. Said the captive from the gallows to Nera, that is manly, O Nera. Manly indeed, said Nera. By the truth of thy valour, said the captive, take me on thy neck that I may get a drink. I was very thirsty when I was hanged. Come on my neck then, said Nera. So the captive went on to his neck. Whither shall I carry thee, said Nera. To the house which is nearest to us, said the captive. So they went to that house. Then they saw something, a lake of fire round that house. There is no drink for us in this house, said the captive. Let us therefore go to the other house, which is nearest to us. They went to it and saw a lake of water around it. Do not go to that house, said the captive. There is never a washing nor a bathing tub nor a slop pail in it at night after sleeping. Let us still go on to the other house. Nera let him down at the door. He went into the house. There were tubs for washing and bathing in it and a drink in either of them. Also a slop pail on the floor of the house. The captive then drank a draught of either of them and scattered the last sip from his lips at the faces of the people that were in the house so that they all died. Henceforth, it is not good to have either a tub for washing or bathing or a slop pail in a house after sleeping. Thereupon, Nera carrying the captive back to his torture and then returned to Kruchan. Then he saw something. The stronghold of Kruchan seemed to be burnt before him, and he beheld a heap of heads of his people cut off by the warriors of the fairy mound. He went after the fairy host into the cave of Kruchan. There is a man on our track here, said the last man to Nera. The heavier is the track, said his comrade to him, and each man said that word to his mate from the last man to the first man. Thereupon, they reached the ferry mound of Krachan and went into it. Then the heads were displayed to the king in the ferry mound. What shall we be done to the man that came with you? Asked one of them. Let him come hither that I may speak with him, said the king. Then Nera came to them and the king said to him, what brought thee with the warriors into the fairy mound? I came in the company of thy army, said Nera. Go now to yonder house, said the king. There is a lone woman there who will make thee welcome. Tell her it is from me thou art sent to her, and come every day to this house with a load of firewood. Then Nera did as he was told. The woman bade him welcome and said, Welcome to thee, if it is the king of the fairy folk that sent thee hither. It is he, truly, said Nera. Every day Nera used to go with a burden of firewood to the stronghold of the king. He saw every day a blind man 
and a lame man on his neck, coming out of the stronghold before him. They would go until they were at the brink of a well before the stronghold. Is it there? said the blind man. It is indeed, said the lame one. Let us go away, said the lame man. Nearer then asked the woman about this. Why do the blind man and the lame man visit the well? They visit the crown which is in the well, said the woman, namely a diadem of gold which the king wears on his head. It is there it is kept. Why do those two go? asked Nearer. Not hard to tell, said she, because it is they that are trusted by the king to visit the crown. One of them was blinded, the other lamed. Come hither a little, said Nera to the woman, his wife, that thou mayest explain my adventures now. What has appeared to thee, said the woman. Not hard to tell, said Nera. When I was going into the fairy mound, methought the fortress of Krachen was destroyed, and Elil and Maeve and their whole household had fallen in it. That is not true, indeed, said the woman, but a fairy host came to thee. That will come true, however, said she, unless thou revealest it to thy friends. How shall I give a warning to my people, said Nira? Rise and go to them, said she. They are still around the same cauldron, and the charge has not yet been removed from the fire. Yet it had seemed to him three days and three nights that he had been in the fairy mound. Tell them to be on their guard at next Samhain, unless they come and destroy the fairy mound. For I warn them at this, that the fairy mound must be destroyed by Eliel and Maeve, and the crown of Bruin must be carried off by them. These are the three things which were found there, the mantle of Leary in Armagh, the crown of Bruin in Connacht, and the shirt of Dunlang in Leinster in Kildare. How will it be believed of me that I have gone into the fairy mound, said Nera. Take fruits of summer with thee, said the woman. So he took wild garlic with him and primrose and golden fern. And I shall be pregnant by thee, said she, and shall bear thee a son. Send a message to the fairy mound when thy people are coming to destroy it, that thou mayest take away thy family and thy cattle from the fairy mound. Thereupon Nero went to his people and found them around the same cauldron, and he related his adventures to them. And then the sword was given to him, and he stayed with his people to end the year. Ooh, wonderful. Of course, uh, the tale goes on, but for, for this evening, we're leaving cows out of things, which were more important to folks in ancient times. But uh, any reflections from the readers? Thank you so much. That that uh, uh, certainly brought out the tale to me. Uh, anything in the reading of it that made you, struck you while you were reading that was of note as far as the storytelling? Topically, I was thrilled to hear Gabriel use his voices. <laughs> Anytime we hear well, a story. Yeah, I was sort of inspired by the Green Knight film i think but um that yeah that i mean there's so much in just that short extract i mean that's like two pages and there's so much in it and you get the sense that the that we, we are looking at layers of tradition and history and culture that have um just come down to us 
Um, you could you could discuss just like a few sentences there all night. Um, there's a lot in there, and there's a lot of stuff that we probably don't understand uh, that's been lost to us. But um, I think there's an amazing kind of it's like a hand reaching out from the past, um, a ghoulish hand, probably a severed hand. Um, you know, it is quite creepy stuff. But what what I think is amazing about this, and I was thinking about this um, when I taught. Um, I precepted uh, Dr. Uh, Larry Swain's excellent course on classical myths and legends at Sigmund University over the, the summer. Um, we were reading texts, you know, thousands of years old, but biologically humans haven't changed, right? So the things that are interesting to ancient Greek or ancient Irish or ancient Welsh audiences are the same things that are interesting to us. There's, um, you know, things that go bump in the night, um, things that send shivers down our spines, um, it still works just as well, even if we don't understand all the context anymore. So, yeah, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, yeah. That... Really... Oh, sorry. I was, I was just thinking of uh, Tolkien's uh, statement, you know, his comments on the stew and the bones in the stew. Yeah. Yeah. Big... And, and talking, uh, yeah. I mean, the, the Barrow Rock Whites in Lord of the Rings, um, the Hollow Hills, this is exactly taken from Celtic myth. Um, and the uncanny, he, it, there's a, there's a bit in, um, Fellowship of the Ring where uh, a hand is cut off mm. and the hand sort of twitches like a spider. And this is, this is the uncanny. This is the thing that, um, seems familiar. There's nothing scary about a hand, but if it's a hand that's moving without, um, a body, that's uncanny, that's disturbing, that's scary. And so you kind of get this idea in kind of ancient texts as well as new texts, and it works just as well now as it did thousands of years ago. Similarly, I was just going to say, you know, the thing that struck me was the relatability of it. You know, the the main concerns are, well, how are they going to believe me? You know, how will I convince my friends that I did this the right way? And, you know, I'm self-conscious. I'm concerned about this. You know, all of those things is just human nature. You know, just because we're talking about fairy mounds doesn't mean that it's it's fake, you know. And we have a love of the the uncanny in the sense that uh, the other is so fascinating. Something that's outside of our understanding is absolutely fascinating. I mean, the, the origins of the word uncanny, of course, come from unkennen, which is German, uh, and kennen uh, is the verb to know as in to understand. So if something is unkennen, it means it's you can't understand it. And so something that's uncanny, we can't put a name to that. We can't fully understand it. And humans, we like things to be labely. You know, we like to be able to put a name to something that would then we're comfortable or more comfortable. We can say, okay, I know what this is. But when we have something like Gabriel's sort of idea of a severed hand going across, and, and it's that whole idea of something that um, is utterly outside of experience and abject because it's it's not attached to a human body therefore it makes us revolted by it and repulsed by it and yet weirdly fascinated by it the uncanny has spoken to us for as long as we've written stories because that idea of um, creating stories around that that's the bit that gives you the tickle up the spine around the campfire at night mm -hmm. yeah like Lovecraft. Mm. Mm. I was really, uh, the, the whole thing about the guy on the gallows, 
having the conversation and taking a ride basically with the guy on his neck. And, you know, it's described so succinctly, you know, it's like, it, like, this is just a normal thing that would just, just happen perhaps on a Sawin night. Right. But it's, it's set, it's said in such a matter of fact way as if these things can happen. And yet most of us probably wouldn't have experienced those type things in that way. <laughs> Again, brings out the numinous quality of the night. Um, mm -hmm. And perhaps they can only happen when the veil is yeah. particularly um, thin, as it is supposed to be on Sarwen. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, there's that bit where it says, henceforth, it is not good to have either a tub for washing or bathing or a slot pail in a house after sleeping. Um, you see that sort of thing happen quite a lot in, in ancient texts. So you have it in ancient Greek and Roman texts as well where there's a kind of explanation of the reason, you know, hence the phrase or something like that, or hence why to this day um, things are seen as bad luck or whatever. Um, uh, and it's, you know, again, talking sort of um, plays with that a little bit, you know, with uh, Bill his ancestor inventing golf or whatever. But after a fact thing, um, and also what you were saying, Maggie, about the kind of the humanness in this, even though it is fantastical, it's grounded as well. Um, you know, the, the characters are making choices like real humans would. And there's a way of kind of this text connecting to the present day of the audience. Um, we may not have the same, we may have lost some customs along the way or some phrases but there's still that kind of attempt to kind of connect it to um, our world. And there's the, the three uh, items at the end that are listed uh, as far as being found. And we don't really know what the history is behind them, but it makes us want to know something, something mm -hmm. in that in the not knowing it, it's sort of the draw of the story is not knowing. Mm. Uh, uh, and to want to go into that magical place and recover the memories of what those items were, the backdrop to them. So um, one of the best Halloween movies from America is E.T. Uh, you need to go look it up where they have E.T. and uh, out on Halloween. And that's what's happening outside my window right now. And our professors here from Signum have been kind enough to share. It's only four o'clock here, but I know it's later there. But I know some of us have loved ones and younger ones, and some of us just need to get out and get their freak on, I think, uh, as far as thanking them for being here tonight. and. Um, whatever tradition you come from, um, the way that you uh, celebrate the turning of the year and the numinous in your culture. Um, gosh, Sarah, can I put you on the spot and give us a Welsh uh, blessing or something? To end up <laughs> Not me, I'm afraid. I don't do that sort of thing. But, uh... <laughs> a Welsh word, a Welsh statement. I'll start a there's something. Say it again, yeah. Maggie. Which is good night. Thank you. Well, that's yeah. good. That's that's good. Wonderful. Uh, Were you saying to Thank you very much. <laughs> well, there. I, uh, this American has learned one Welsh phrase now tonight. Good enough. But uh, thanks everyone for tuning in. Uh, I will unveil this veil for you. The, the true, the true horror is now beginning. It's true. Um, everyone, stay safe. Blessings. Have a good evening. Thank you very much. Thanks for everyone for coming. Thanks everybody. Thanks everyone. Bye bye. Good night. Bye.